All right, so remember, 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 9, Paul is dealing with the majority of the church, the church that has received his teaching, and that has also chosen loyalty to him as a true apostle over loyalty to the false apostles, the ones that are claiming superiority over Paul, and that Paul... Other translations are more fun. They say super apostles. Here it says most eminent apostles. And so we will see that text today. So there's that. And then there's chapters 10 through 13, which are those with whom he is displeased, the minority that has not applied church discipline, and that is rejecting what he is teaching. And so he is starting to rebuke them more harshly. And so we will run through the text. Chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Okay, so first of all, he is calling the idea of defending himself to, as a general rule, presenting reasons for commendation of self is folly. Better that a passing stranger praise you, that you praise yourself. Right, so he is violating that general proverb because of the fact that he needs to defend himself. So praising yourself, talking about your own virtues, is appropriate when you are defending yourself. Though it is generally something that is wide to avoid. And this is a pretty sarcastic chapter. Apostle Paul says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. He is saying, they think they are bearing with him. They think that he's a burden. They think that he is the problem. They think that his ministry is the one that's bringing trouble on them. They think that what he asks of them is too heavy. And so what he's going to do is he's going to help them to understand their misunderstandings about him and about what he is asking of them and what he has done for them. Verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Okay, so that's one of the first burdens. They do bear with him. His jealousy for them is something that they think is wrong. He is jealous for his legitimate claims. He is jealous for his legitimate authority. What is jealousy? Jealousy is the desire for a thing. Jealousy is the desire for it to the exclusion of other people's use. Jealousy is to desire a thing for yourself and not for others. And when a thing is yours, and when it's meant only for you, the only appropriate thing is jealousy. For example, God is jealous for his own glory and that it not be shared with another. Spouses ought to be jealous that there be faithfulness in marriage. And those who have authority should be jealous that those under their authority be loyal to them rather than disloyal and to honor the legitimate authority. And those who are in authority also ought to be jealous for the proper care and defense of their people. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He's desirous for their loyalty, for their holiness, for their care, for their godliness. 
He is desirous that they would be protected against wolves. He is jealous for them with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. His jealousy is not ultimately for himself. His jealousy is on Christ's behalf. That they recognize the legitimate apostles, but not false apostles. And in this desire, his desire is that the church would be kept pure, chaste, undefiled, holy for Christ. This should remind you also of the idea of rejoicing in the bridegroom, like we talked about this morning. And he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And so a jealousy for Christ's honor and for the protection and chastity of his wife is what Paul's jealousy is. If you are a friend of a man, if you see his wife in some way being endangered, you will be jealous to protect that man's wife for your friend. And so that idea that you would want to protect that, if you are a friend of a man and you see his children being endangered in some way, you would be jealous to protect them for that friend. And so this is godly jealousy. Calvin, one of Calvin's great lines, he's many, read Calvin, is even a dog, when he sees his master attacked, will bark. If we see God's honor assailed, we should at least meet the level of dogs and bark in his defense. When we see him blasphemed, we ought to Raise that concern. And if we see the bride of Christ attacked, we should bark in her defense. Verse 3, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So, the church here is, con- is compared to Eve. Rome sometimes will try to compare Mary to Eve. The church is the scriptural comparison because Eve was the bride of Adam and the church is the bride of Christ. Okay, so the concern here is that the church, like Eve, like the wife of the first Adam, the wife of the second Adam, might be deceived by Satan. That deception would be for a false loyalty and therefore unholiness with false doctrine and that would result in false worship and wrong government. Paul is combating all of that. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Notice the word simplicity. One of the great dangers is not simply that we will deny what the scriptures teach, but that we will have accretions and oozings and additions 
and layers of human tradition and doctrines of demons that corrupt and add on to and cover up the simplicity of Christ. The simplicity of Christ is not an assertion that the Bible is super simple and that there's not very much to learn. No, there is a lot to learn in the Bible. It is a long book written by a super intelligent mind. There's a lot to learn. However, there is a danger of imposing other things because we find it too bland. We find it too boring. We want other things. We crave the leeks and onions of Egypt rather than the manna that God has given to us from heaven. So what we must do is be careful to preserve the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, I think this text also is showing that there is a danger here in terms of the serpent deceiving Eve, and it involves the idea that there's a corruption that involves addition. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, we know the serpent deceived Eve by denying what was said by God, but he also adds doctrine. And so in the adding of doctrine, there is the getting rid of the simplicity of what is revealed. So we need to be careful to hold to what is revealed and to not add to it. That is the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. All right, false doctrine about Jesus is heresy. It must be opposed. False doctrine, in general, is coming with a different spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the truth. And we are to test the spirits. And the way we test the spirits is by seeing if what they say is according to Scripture and Scripture alone. And so if somebody brings doctrine that is different from what the Spirit has revealed, that is not to be put up with. A different gospel. The word gospel can be used in the broad sense of the whole word of God. It can be used in the narrower sense of the new covenant. It can be used in the narrower sense of just the positive assertions, the news, the indicatives as opposed to the commands. Whichever the meaning, none of those should be tolerated coming with a different gospel. So what's the danger that we might put up with it what, what is the problem in church in America? Is the church in America too careful to guard its doctrine? Or is the church in America too likely to put up with it? The apostles' concern in Corinth was that they might put up with another Jesus being preached, a different spirit being received, a different gospel being accepted. Putting up with false versions of any of those. There is a sin of tolerating false religion, tolerating false doctrine, and it is the duty of the church by government to guard the doctrine, worship, and government. That is what the keys are for. Verse 5, 
For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. And eminent apostles is a fine translation, but it's way less fun than super apostles. Super apostles is a way more fun and therefore memorable interpretation. It sounds more sarcastic. And frankly, it's pretty clear that Paul is being sarcastic. So the most eminent apostles is designed to placate people who think he might be talking about the legitimate apostles. Okay? So some people read this and they go, Paul is saying, I'm just as good as Peter. I'm just as good as John. But that is not the point. He is talking about these guys who are in Corinth that are claiming to be apostles and claiming to be better apostles. They're better apostles because they have better stuff and their lives are happier and they get beat less often. These apostles seem to be successful and less troubled. And so what there is is this appeal to the idea that if he's so great, why isn't his life great? That's a part of what these guys are saying. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. So when you look at many of the translations, including the King James, what you'll find is, I am not at all inferior to the super apostles. There is an equality of office for the apostles in general. The some apostles might be more eminent than each other in their personage. Paul, for example, becomes more well-known. He does more work. He writes more letters. Right? He becomes more well-known. You think about the Apostle Paul, I imagine, more often than you think about Thomas. Just a guess. Right? He is a more eminent servant of the Lord, even though he has an equal office. There's a difference in the work that gets done. There's a difference in the quality of the work. There's a difference in the quantity of the work. And the idea is, even if these guys were legitimate apostles, that Paul is just as qualified and just as good or better than them. That's his point. What is he doing? He is applying what is called an ad hominem argument, where he says, okay, fine, fine, fine. Let's assume these guys are apostles. If they are, I'm just as good as them. So now you have to listen to both of us. And if we are contradicting each other, you have to figure it out. And that's the point. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most imminent apostles, to the super apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not untrained in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you all, sorry, among you in all things. All right. The speech versus knowledge. This is rhetoric versus knowledge. This is the idea. And this has been a theme. The Greeks care a lot about rhetoric. And here's the deal. People who are priestly, people who are concerned about relationship and beauty and the desire to have loyalty be the thing, they are most likely to be manipulated by pathos, appeals to caring about something that is either worthy of protection or beautiful. Niceness is generally a priestly type of appeal. In our time, one of the rhetorical things that's used is preachers that are solid, that have guts, that are manly, sound mean. And preachers who dance away from the word of God, sound nice. Let's be inclusive. Let's be welcoming. Let's not be judgmental. 
The Apostle Paul does not fit the mold. Niceness is a part of the modern rhetoric. It is a part of the dress and the garb of appealing to the current culture. Some cultures would find modern niceness to be a disgusting effeminacy. Oh, for such days. Now, what we have is not only that, but there's also being stylistic. Skinny jeans. Things that are cool. Being in the in crowd, being associated with the proper people. Sometimes people will appeal to lesser loyalties and the wrong loyalties to try to get people to not care about doctrine or right practice. Lesser objectives or wrong objectives. Don't you want to be winsome? Or simply using pleasurable listening, making the sermons delightful to hear. Kingly people are more manipulable by appeals to ethos. The idea that I care about you and getting the mission done with you is sort of the pathos part of what the mission is. The ethos part is honor and right acting. Ethos is often associated with the idea of a person coming with goodwill, being credible. Similar, similar word to ethic, ethos. So the pathos is about finding things that people care about and appealing to it, and you, you take their idol and you put it up to God and you say, don't you love your idol more? And ethos is about the honor and the credibility, being inspirational, being based, being motivating. Prophetic people, people who are focused on doctrine, tend to have a danger towards not listening enough and thinking they know it all. So there's a prejudicial logos. I know the argument already. I don't need to listen to this. I don't need to get, consider it carefully. The logos is about listening to the reasons. Prophetic people are also tempted by money and pragmatics that will help them to be in a better class and to be considered intellectually respectable. So arguments that will allow for those things are things that are dangers for prophetic people. You don't have to have everybody like you. You just want the elitists to like you. Now, this is the danger of rhetoric. What matters? You should judge the preaching by the doctrine. You judge the preaching by whether it's according to the word of God. Do not pick your preacher based upon whether he has the proper rhetorical training or ability or manifestation. You pick a preacher based upon whether he's communicating knowledge. And you know knowledge from opinion by, is it in the text? Is it what God teaches? We have made this clear in every way. Is a better way. It's an easier way of understanding when it says, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Manifested as ones with knowledge. Manifested as legitimate apostles. Okay, so we've made this clear. We've made it clear that we are apostles, 
that I, Paul, am an apostle, and that I have an apostolic band, and I've made it clear that I have knowledge. That's been made manifest. That's made manifest in terms of the doctrine, the worship he's commanding, the, the government he's encouraging, the way that he's teaching proper love according to the law. He has the giftings of an apostle. He brings about the effect that church was planted. Corinth was planted as a church. They heard the true gospel, and a church was created of a church that upholds the true gospel. And he had the apostolic signs, which isn't a proof, but it's a manifestation. Page 3, verse 7. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. Part of this is they're saying, you know, we're putting up with you, Paul. Paul, we're carrying a lot of burden for you. Well, which burden is that? Is it the burden that you had to deal with my teaching for free? Was that the burden? Was that the thing that you felt was such a heavy yoke? The humbling of himself. You know, he's saying, I served you. Not only did I serve you, but I served you for free. So that you might be exalted as the one being served and also as one gaining knowledge, becoming sons of God, being sanctified, that eventually you might be glorified. Verse 8, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. So he obviously didn't literally rob them. What is he saying? He's saying he took things that he didn't have a right to take. He didn't have a right to take a wage from other people to do work for them. He had a right to take a wage from them for doing work for them. But he took something he didn't have a right to, though they obviously gave it willingly, and Paul was not defrauded. So this is a demonstration that missionaries can be supported from home churches. Okay? Notice also, I robbed other churches, plural. This helps to show that sending missionaries is an appropriate function not only of local churches, but of presbyteries. Churches, plural. So this is one of the things that is a legitimate commissioning activity of higher courts commission men to plant churches. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. So Paul sometimes received funding to go help to plant churches or care for churches. Sometimes the people there would help to support him. Sometimes he would make tents to support himself. And sometimes there would be special efforts to help him by some other church. And remember Macedonia, we've already found that they were poor and they are giving liberally and they supported Paul to support Corinth. That would be sort of like a church in Nigeria paying for a (coughs) preacher in Phoenix, Arizona. This is supposed to make them feel ashamed. Notice that Paul seems to lay the shaming on pretty thick. Just a note. One of the significant things that the law is used for is to draw people out and to have a culture of honor for doing the right thing and a culture of shame for doing the wrong thing. 
And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Ouch. Now, imagine you've got somebody who's blessed you for a long time, worked real hard to bless you, and you start grumbling about that person being a burden, and they go, oh, I see how it is. That's fine. I'll keep doing this. I'll keep helping you, and don't worry. I won't take a nickel from you. How would you feel when they say that? You would go, oh, and you would really regret that and really regret not supporting and regret the opportunity being gone to support, right? Because there's this idea of the ability to bless the person also brings blessing on you, and now that's gone. It's sort of like where Abraham didn't want to take any of the spoils of war when he rescued Lot. Because he didn't want anybody to say the king of Sodom made him rich. Don't worry, I won't take any money from you, so you won't get any of the credit for supporting the Apostle Paul, Corinth. But you do have an opportunity to keep your promise and to provide money to help the saints in Jerusalem. Don't shame me there. Don't bring shame on yourselves there. You see how this powerfully boasts or boosts that. You missed one thing, don't miss the next. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. What is he saying? So, Calvin and Beza interpret verse 10 as an oath, right? So, as the truth of Christ is in me. So, in other words, it's, a, it's an oath, right? As God lives and is in me, or you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, Hodge interprets it as causal, because tri- Christ is in me. Grammatically, it's, a, it's interpretable either way. Okay? But the last part, verse 11, is obviously a, an appeal to God's witness. And so verse 11 is certainly an oath. Okay? So here we have lawful uses of oaths in the New Testament. And so I, I, think, I think Calvin and Beza are right, but I, I couldn't... It's not, it's not necessary from the grammar. So... As the truth of Christ is in me, and that's obviously how the New King James interprets it as well, and the King James. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. So he's not going to stop boasting about the fact that he's not been a burden to them. Why? Because he loves them. He wants to argue against these false apostles by saying, I'm not stealing from them. I'm not milking them. Corinth is not a tithe farm for me. This is not a place where I'm just trying to get cash money. This is a place where I'm trying to serve. And I want to see true doctrine and right worship and right government. And I'm not taking a dime from them because I want to see the truth prevail. That's what he's doing. That's the kind of boasting he's talking about. But what I do... I will also continue to do, verse 12. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So there are usurpers that are trying to claim to be legitimate officers, and Paul is saying they are not legitimate officers. They are false officers. They are false apostles. And he's saying he is going to bear this burden for the purpose undermining them. Because they complain about Paul being a burden. He says, okay, fine. 
You think I'm a burden? Well, I'm not taking any money from them. Are you taking any money from them? Oh, you are taking money from them. So who's the bigger burden? If you're no burden and I'm a burden, wouldn't you want to at least equalize? Maybe you should top, stop taking money from them, super apostles. This is a way of cutting off their path of supply. This is a way of attacking their lines of supply because their argumentation is against him and against him being burdensome. And so he is now saying, great, if I'm burdensome, you are more so. So the, the argument applies to you double. He's cutting off a path of retreat. This does not seem very nice. This is the Apostle Paul playing hardball with other officers, or people that claim to be officers, when they are undermining the public ministry of the word. What I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Now, we hear the word apostle and we go, oh, okay, apostles, and this was a problem back then. Do you think most of the preachers in most of the churches today are faithful, diligent workers who guard the doctrine, worship, and government of the church against the popular whim? Or do you think the majority of preachers in churches today are people who seek to gather people based upon itching ears in order to fleece them? We have to deal with false preachers who are deceitful workers transforming themselves into ministers of Christ. That is a problem today. And anybody that calls himself an apostle today, by the way, is one of them. The office of apostle is complete. It required that you witness the risen Christ. And Paul tells us that he was the last to witness the risen Christ. As one born out of due time. There are no apostles today. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Verse 14. And no wonder... No wonder they are false apostles. No wonder they are deceitful workers. No wonder they transform themselves into apostles of Christ. Because Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan keeps an angel of light costume in the closet. He brings it out whenever he's trying to deceive the church. It's his first trick. If he rings the doorbell and nobody accepts him in as an angel of light, he might try other things. But that is the easiest trick. His servants have learned that lesson well. Lesser servants of Satan copy Satan. And they seek to transform themselves into ministers of righteousness by putting on minister of righteousness costumes. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You are obligated to approach preaching with skepticism. It is your job to judge preaching with skepticism. Which means you're going, is this what the text teaches? What I did not say is to be a lazy skeptic, which is, well... In this particular sermon, you did not lay out all of the arguments so as to form the syllogism for everything you said. No. 
is what was taught in the scripture. You have to search the scripture to see if these things are so. If it required a syllogism for every statement, then you'd have to prove the statements in the syllogism. And then you'd have to prove the statements for that. And you'd have to, I can't reach any higher. So the problem is that you can't prove everything that you're saying, but everything that you're saying should be defensible from the scriptures, and it's your job to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So how do we judge? How do we judge if ministers are ministers of righteousness? or if ministers are wolves wearing minister of righteousness costumes. Do they teach the doctrine that the scripture teaches? Do they command the worship that God commands in his word? Can you prove it? Can you prove that worship from the word? Can you prove the doctrine from the word? Is the government that is in place, that's administered, that's taught what the scriptures teach? And that would include a lawful calling a lawful calling means that there was a providential necessity that caused preaching or the church was able to nominate, test, elect, and ordain the man. Verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool that I may also boast a little. Okay, so, look, give me a hearing, Corinthians. Don't be prejudiced against me. Don't just assume that I'm a fool because these super apostles say so. Hear me out. Okay, fine. You won't hear me out and you think I'm a fool. Then at least let me, as a fool, come and boast a bit. And then you'll hear my case. Okay, so think about this. You know what my experience has been in arguing with other ministers of the gospel? My experience has been not one of them will argue in public about the doctrine that is in dispute. There are accusations, there are statements, there are assertions, and there's always a reason to not have a public meeting. The Apostle Paul's response to people who won't give a hearing I say again, let no one think me a fool. If you do think I'm a fool, at least receive me as a fool that I also may boast a little. Okay, fine. At least give me a hearing so you can then condemn me. That's the idea. Fine. You think I'm a fool? Let me prove it to you. Let me prove to you that I'm a fool. And then you can condemn me all you want. And you will have all of the evidence because you will have heard me boast as a fool. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. So now, here's the boasting. Again, what's the point of the boasting? The point of the boasting is not to say, here are qualifications for lawful teachers. Instead, it's the super apostles, the most eminent and holy, Pope Leo. Right? The, the, the idea of the person who is hearing all of this is dealing with these super apostles. 
And he's saying, okay, the, the, the things that these super apostles are claiming are a part of the basis for why you need to accept them as lawful officers that are even more imminent than, than me, Paul. Let me, let me present to you, according to their qualification set, my own qualifications. So, when you're dealing with somebody who puts up a fake, unbiblical, man-made ethic to judge things, one of the weapons we can use is to say, all right, fine, let's judge according to your standard. Which one wins? Now, you don't, you're not admitting their standards right, but you're showing, sometimes you can show how even admitting their position, they lose. It's always fun. Verse 18. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. So these are things that come from the flesh, not from the spirit. For you put up with fools gladly. Ouch. Earlier on, he said that he was worried that these people would put up with false apostles, with false gospel, with false Jesus, with a false spirit. And now he's just right now saying, it. yeah, you guys put up with, with fools gladly. You, but at the same time, for some reason, you don't put up with me, but you say, I'm a fool. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. Notice that's sarcastic too. If they were wise, they would not corrupt themselves with bad company. If they were wise, they wouldn't put up with a false gospel, a false Jesus, a false spirit, false apostles. But they call themselves wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. Now some people try to read this and they think that he's being serious. You put up with fools gladly because you're so wise. And you even let people enslave you and devour you and take everything from you and usurp authority over you and strike you on the face. Look how kind and peaceable these people are. This is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. But Here's why people think this. They go to Matthew 5 and they read Jesus saying some things that sounds kind of similar. Okay? Well, look at this. Matthew 5, 38-48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Don't resist super apostles, right? Don't resist anybody. Don't resist in any way at all, ever. No resistance. Not the slightest resistance. Now, real quick, before we read the rest of it, let's ask ourselves, are there any approved examples of resisting evil anywhere in the Bible? Does Jesus resist evil at all, like ever? Does he at least do it with his words? He came to die, right? So, I mean, he let himself get captured and die and be killed. But do we have any approved, like, even physical self-defense? Like Purim? How about this? Okay, go, go, to the, go to the very end of the chapter for just a second. Verses 32 to 33. In Damascus, the governor under Eretus the king was guarding the city of Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. The Apostle Paul resisted arrest. The Apostle Paul resisted arrest. Fleeing is a type of resistance. 
If somebody is a king and they say, stop, you're under arrest, and you go, ha, 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 and you run away, they will interpret that as you resisting arrest. That's a type of resistance. So, let's go back. Matthew, we're on page 4. Matthew 38. Sorry, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other, the other to him also. Is the Lord Jesus Christ there saying that the law that God instituted eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is an unjust law. No. He is not saying, I taught this earlier, and now I am saying it's bad. The point is, you as an individual have no right to avenge yourself. Who has a right to avenge you? God. Vengeance is the Lord's. And who has he appointed to take vengeance for us? Ministers of wrath, the avenger, the state. The state is given the sword, not in vain, but for the purpose of administering justice. You do not avenge yourself. So, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, not in the form of defending yourself. If somebody's going to try to knock your eye out, defend yourself. The idea here is somebody takes your eye out, you don't go avenge yourself. You don't grab the guy in a van and then take his eye out. That is not your right. You have no right to avenge, avenge yourself. That's what's being talked about. That's the context. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. So this is now talking about dishonor. I get he slapped on the cheek. Watch, no permanent harm. If somebody else did that to me, you wouldn't be so concerned that I needed to go to the hospital. What would you be concerned about? You'd think it was shameful that they slapped me on the cheek. You would think it a dishonor more than you would be concerned about my physical safety. Getting slapped on the cheek is about dishonor. So you don't avenge yourself for actual harms. And you do not defend your honor as though it were your life. If somebody dishonors you, you show yourself under self-control and give them the other opportunity to dishonor you. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Is this saying you can never defend yourself in the court? No. But you know what the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians? He says, it's better to be defrauded than to go to court before unbelievers. When you have a brother, right? This is the, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. There are times when you need to defend your property through a lawful process. And that process looks like first going to church courts when it's with a person who is a credible profession of faith. And then, secondarily, you would go to lawful courts as a backup, but you have to be willing to suffer loss rather than fighting over everything. If you fight over everything, you may find some suits are foolish and unwise. It is better to suffer loss in many cases. For example, a cloak was relatively expensive, and a tunic was relatively expensive at the time, but we're not talking about losing your patrimony. We're not talking about losing all of your capital goods. We're not talking about losing everything that the Lord has given to you that you can provide for your inheritance and your children's inheritance. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So somebody's imposing burdens on you, okay, take some burdens. You can go extra. This doesn't mean you just allow yourself to be enslaved forever. But it is saying be willing to take on more burden 
than you might think initially is reasonable. Under the Roman law of the time, the Romans could grab anybody in the empire and make them provide service of carrying for soldiers for up to a mile. And the idea of going two miles would be willing to go up to twice the legal limit there. And I don't think that's the actual precept that applies to us, but the point is simply the idea that you'd be willing to go beyond things to show your freedom. This is a way of regaining your honor. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, fine. Turn the other. That regains your honor. You have somebody imposing a burden on you and you carry it, okay, you can go extra burden. That doesn't mean you go forever. It doesn't mean you give up all rights, that you never defend anything. The point is you are self-controlled and you are willing to sacrifice for peace. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Does this mean we can never say no to people who ask for stuff and we can never say no to people who want to borrow things? Of course not. We look at the rest of Scripture and we determine there are principles for worthy poor. If you will not work, you shall not eat. So we have to harmonize these things. To take these things and to rip them out of Scripture and not use any of the rest of Scripture to harmonize them, to interpret them as a system is how you get ridiculous abuses of the text. Verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The idea here is, God gives signs of favor to people who are elect and reprobate alike. And we don't know who the elect are just based upon outward sunshine. By the way, the Apostle Paul is defending himself saying, just because I don't get sunshine and rainbows all the time doesn't mean I'm not loved of God. Okay? Let's think about the other side of that argument. Just because you get sunshine and rainbows doesn't mean you're loved of God. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are obligated to keep the law towards our enemies, because they are people that just as God takes his enemies and turns them into his friends, we do not know which of those enemies will be friends in the long run. We do not know who is elect, though they be our enemy now. So the idea is that a part of the weaponry of our warfare is the weaponry of self-control and taking burdens and taking beatings and taking harms and taking costs. And the effect is often, often, often that people will repent and be ashamed. But some people are shameless. And so you do not allow yourself to be abused forever because you would throw away your life. And you would throw away the gifts that God has given you. And you have a duty to protect people who are under your authority. So go back to the Corinthian text. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. 
for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. The bondage would be imposing slavery, or it could be the idea of imposing man-made laws, or it could be, and it seems from the context is, the imposition of old covenant ceremonies is obligatory. They should have resisted that. If one devours you, right? people who use public office to tear out your substance, to take from you what they have no right to, to abuse the position to take from you things and to consume what you are and what you have, that should be resisted. Yeah, that should be resisted in the church is by church discipline and the removal of officers that are unfit. If one takes from you, okay, so there's now the wrongful use of authority, the wrongful use of church courts, perhaps. And if you find that there's a abuse of church courts, the appropriate thing is to seek to find a way to get evidence to deal with the removal of unjust rulers. If one exalts himself, usurpation, you don't accept unlawful officers and you shot them down. And there are many who go through proper process and then show themselves to be wolves. And when that occurs, you don't honor them when they show themselves to be wolves. If one strikes you in the face, there's dishonoring, unjust dishonoring that's occurring. This so obviously relates to the idea of you know, striking on the cheek and then the, turning the other cheek. But if there's somebody who is just Imagine I was just unjustly shaming you from the pulpit all the time. I'd be slapping you in the face from the pulpit over and over again. If you've got a guy who's unjustly shaming you all the time, you remove. You don't put up with it. You remove. Because that person is domineering. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. So Paul is saying, yeah, I know you guys put up with this thing. you know, But we were too weak for that because we would have rebuked people who wrongly dishonored us and we would have rebuked people who usurped and we would have rebuked people who stole and we would have rebuked people who devoured and we would have rebuked people who imposed wrongful law <coughs> and Paul does do that the sarcasm it is thick sarcasm to our shame I say that we were too weak for that right? fighting Calling people out, naming evil action, is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength when it's done in self-control. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. So Paul is saying, fine, you think this is weakness? I'm too weak for that. And... I'm as bold as everybody. You remember earlier on in chapter 10 when they were saying he's bold on Twitter and he's weak in person? Right? And he's saying, okay, I will show you boldness there if you have not repented. And I'll be just as bold as they. So now he's listing out a bunch of things to say, okay, fine, they say, they say, that they are qualified for office more than me. Why? Because they're Hebrews? I am too. Page 5. Because they're Israelites? I, I, I'm an Israelite. Hebrews are a broader category, and Israelites a more narrow one. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Now, by the way, why would you differentiate between Israelites and the seed of Abraham? 
You could be an Israelite, be circumcised, join the nation, and not be a physical descendant of Abraham, right? You could have an Egyptian who gets circumcised, comes in, they're an Israelite. But he's saying, okay, I'm an Israelite, and I'm a descendant of Abraham. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Now, why is this speaking as a fool? He's saying, look, I'm a minister of Christ too. And the way they talk about being a minister of Christ is look how effective and fruitful and useful we are. And he's saying, fine, we're going to judge that. I'm a minister of Christ too and more. And labor is more abundant. Now, that's the, that's the first thing they're talking about is how much work they do. This is like hustle culture. Like they're, they're like, they're posting stuff on Facebook. They're like, I'm working a 20-hour day today, you know? And this whole, like, you know, you just got to work harder, everybody. That, that thing, right? This is what they're doing. They're, they're saying, look how successful, look how hardworking I am. I'm a super amazing guy. And you just got to work 27 hours a day, too, and then you can have it, too. And that's this, like, I'm so great, I'm working so hard thing. And Paul's saying, okay, fine. So we're doing this? Is this what we are doing? If we are doing this, let's do this. I work harder than you. Let's be real, super apostles. And here's some evidence. Not only do I work harder than you, but how many times, super apostle, have you been beaten for Christ? How many times, super apostle, have you gone to prison for Christ? These were the things they were mocking him for. They were saying, he's not successful. He's got negative stuff happening. He's getting beat, and he's being put into prison. Why do you think God favors him? Oh, we're using the I work really hard for Christ card? Okay, maybe you should think about these in that context. I get beat for Christ, I've gone to prison for Christ, I've died for Christ. You go, what? Died for Christ? How is that? I believe that the scriptures teach us that the Apostle Paul actually died multiple times and was resurrected by the supernatural working of God. He died. He'll have multiple martyr crowns. It'll be really great. So he dies. Now, this is something that you can take this and say, you know, he's dying to the flesh and he's, he's dying to his pride and he's dying by getting beat. But I think he also literally died. Now, let's, let's keep going. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. The law of Moses says you can't beat somebody more than 40 times for an offense because otherwise you're going to beat him so much that you lose track of their humanity. You stop thinking of them as human. And in order to avoid going over this line, the Talmud says... Beat the guy 39 times, so if you miscount, it's only 40 still. Three times I was beaten with rods. So here's canings. Once I was stoned. Okay, that's probably one of the times he died. Three times I was shipwrecked. Shipwreck frequently results in death. One of them is recorded in Acts. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Is that talking about being in the deep of the sea because of one of the shipwrecks? Or is that talking about being in the deep in terms of Hades, going to paradise? Is that talking about the deep in terms of a, um, an idea of death in general and being in a tomb? I don't know, but I think it's a reference to the idea of being dead one of the times. In journeys often, so he's gone traveling. Traveling was very dangerous, very expensive, very difficult, very inconvenient at this time. They didn't have camelbacks to carry water. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. Right? He's going from town to town. He's going in the water. He's got shipwreck. That's perils of water. Perils of robbers. He's going on the roads. He's getting robbed. He is dealing with his own countrymen. He finds new groups of Jews to hate him. 
They, they persecute him in one town. He finds more Jews that persecute him in the next. There's a cycle of outrage about him. In perils of the Gentiles. And then the Jews don't like him, and neither do the Gentiles. Right? He, he, he goes in and causes split church, he causes church splits for the Jews. And he goes in and causes riots for the Gentiles. And so, you know, not a welcome guest. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. When he's in the city, the Gentiles and the Jews don't like him, and the governors don't like him. When he's in the wilderness, he doesn't have the comforts of these things, has the dangers of robbers and animals and not having things that he needs. In perils in the seas, in perils amongst false brethren. So, we have water get listed three times. Shipwreck, water, seas. And I feel like after three shipwrecks, he's kind of got this trauma about going on the water. Right? He's like thinking about it. He's like, he's like I'm going to get beat, and I've been stoned to death, and the shipwrecks, and, and then the Gentiles, and the Jews, and the shipwrecks. And then, this is like, he's having this like recall of the problem, the difficulties of the sea. Also, I imagine sea travel was not particularly comfortable. The stabilizers were not very advanced. The ships were particularly rocky at the time. So not a very fun thing. The false brethren. There are few things so painful as people who covenant falsely and betray you. Perils of false brethren. And that's who he's warning. He's warning these false brethren to not be false brethren. The perils he's got are these Corinthians that are betraying him and these super apostles that they are supporting. And they themselves are false brethren. In weariness and toil. Right? He, is, he is spending himself. He is laboring to the point of weariness. He is laboring in toil. Toil being labor that ultimately is not fruitful there. But we know it will be fruitful in the end. God will reward it. And there's times when you work and then it just results in getting slapped in the face. In sleeplessness, often. In hunger and thirst. Sleeplessness can be because you're having to work through the night. Sleeplessness can also be a result of being stressed out. In hunger and thirst. Some of that hunger and thirst was probably because people like the Corinthians weren't providing for them where they should have. In fastings often, there's voluntary hunger in cold and nakedness, generally probably in prison, or after being beaten or stoned, and then being thrown out, cast out. Beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, that is the price of servant leadership. It is the concern, the stress burden of caring about people who are under your authority. That stress that you carry. Who is weak and I am not weak? Right? So when somebody has some difficulty, who doesn't then put that onto Paul? So that he has to use his strength to help with it, and he becomes weak. Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? The, the coming of somebody sins, and now he has to be angry about the people who caused him to stumble, potentially angry righteously at the person for stumbling and wasting time, but also coming and seeking to see the man restored. Right? We've seen that in his first letter. So these guys think they're ministers of Christ. If you want to judge by the willingness to serve, the cost that has been paid, the Apostle Paul beats them. 
And he's saying, this isn't how we should judge. This is foolish. This sounds like, this sounds pretty convincing, right? Like, you listen to this and you think, oh yeah, we should judge ministers by how many times they've been beat. That sounds like you'd only have good ministers. Like, probably a decent filtration method. Avoid a lot of junk. But at the same time, this is foolishness. This is not how you actually measure. The way you measure is the doctrine, the worship, and the government. What does the scripture say about doctrine, worship, and government? Are you teaching according to the dictates of the king? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my weakness, infirmity. I'm weak in suffering all these things. I'm weak in not accomplishing everything I want to accomplish. And that is a cost that's paid. That's what he's saying. So he's taking an ad hominem argument. He's saying, okay, you guys think you judge the apostles by all these things that are of the flesh? And he shows them how he has those things. And then he takes the things they're arguing against him, the fact that he suffers, and he turns it on the head. And he says, my suffering is a part of my laboring more abundantly than you. And then he explains it in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The things you're calling my weaknesses, I'll boast in that. So he's trying to make them ashamed to point that out anymore. Oh, you want to talk about how I'm suffering and therefore I'm not a legitimate apostle? This, this is going to be a very memorable thing when the Corinthians have read this one. And every time they hear about suffering from now on, they're going to remember, yeah, all the suffering he did for Jesus? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. This is an oath. <laughs> He's calling on God as a witness. There's a lot of oaths in this one. There's a lot of oaths. In this point of controversy, he is calling upon God to witness, and he's doing it repeatedly. He's charging up the weapon. He's saying, God knows. God knows. God knows. And he's, these, these super apostles, right, they need to be afraid because the calling upon the testimony of God, right, if they are falsely combating the truth, if they are falsely combating a lawful officer, if they are falsely laying accusations and seeking to tear him down, then the calling of these oaths calls upon the power of God to curse. And it calls upon the power of God to bless Paul. So he says, he swears he's not lying about what? In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. What is this about? One of the things you'll see in pop evangelicalism is if you can be a preacher who spends time with a governor or a president, that is an honor given. And, you know, people talk about like, you know, look, here's Billy Graham. He's talking to like five presidents in a row or whatever. This is the Apostle Paul taking that and he's saying, you know, the governor of Damascus who was appointed by Eretus the king. He took note of me. You know he took note of me? He issued a warrant for my arrest. That's how he took note of me. And guess what I did? I resisted arrest by escaping through a window in a basket, a Rolls-Royce basket. 
I have friends in low places. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. The level of sarcasm here is delightfully pollying. And we can see the sanctified use of sarcasm, the way Paul does it. Sarcasm is very appropriate against false teachers and usurpers. Speaking harshly and not nicely is very appropriate in public discourse about doctrine, worship, and government, especially when the sheep are being fleeced, deceived, or being prevented from doing duties. We do not see this often. We do not see it done very well normally. And one of the things that will make you have more proper appreciation for it is if you read some Martin Luther and some John Calvin. It will more properly set your palate up to appreciate it. All right, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.